Good, everybody. Hello. I'm learning lots about myself this morning. Thank you, Mary. It's always awkward when someone chooses the wrong Bible college, <laughs> but uh, it's okay. Um, my name is Sam. Um, it's really great to be here to speak to you. Um, just to say that um, I feel like well, there's two things to say about the sermon. One of them, I feel like it was an absolute hospital pass. Um, because I was asked to connect, I'll see if you can do this, uh, asked to connect the Sabbath, the burning bush, the exodus, and the goodness of God all together somehow. And when you explained to me how he thought that might work, still made zero sense to me. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but also, uh, it'll be interesting doing this one because I feel like this one, I'm really, really preaching to myself, actually. So it'll be interesting to see what happens as I say this out loud to myself. Um, But we've just heard the story of the burning bush, which probably a lot of people in the room kind of feel they know fairly well. So if you can sort of push the Prince of Egypt imagery to the side just a little bit to start with, um, this is really a moment where God reintroduces himself to human beings all over again. Uh, And it's this crazy, supernatural, overwhelming experience for the human being he does that through, which is Moses. So that's where we're going to start. And this type of event that occurs in the story of God appearing in this way uh, occurs quite a few times throughout the Bible, quite a few times throughout the Old Testament. And the fancy word for this event is theophany. Have we got that on the screen? Yes. This is the fancy word for for the event of God showing up, usually accompanied by some amazing or unusual uh, visual display. And theophanies are like this, these strange and mysterious events, and often they can be a little bit bonkers, um, but most of the time they're frightening. You know, they can be bonkers, like God turns up and has a fist fight with somebody, and other times he makes a donkey speak, and it sort of makes not a lot of sense. But other times it can be just really, really frightening. And uh, the witnesses of these, these events usually fall down terrified, not wanting to look at it. Um, usually, actually, they feel like they want to die because um, they don't want to go on living with, with what they've seen in front of them. Um, it's like the event is too much for them. And this is exactly the kind of event that's going on with the burning bush. So what I thought would be what we'd do is, as a way of sort of planting that in a bigger story is just do a quick whistle-stop tour of these kind of theophanies throughout the Old Testament, just to give you an idea of how they all fit. Um, so I'm not going to do all of them, just five uh, key theophanies of the Old Testament. So the first actual main theophany that we could really see is in the primeval story of the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. Uh, And this is where human beings have just decided on independence, on doing their own thing, stepping away from God. And when they do this, their entire perception of the world completely changes. uh, And this is when God shows up and he shows up in the garden, starts walking around. And for the very first time, because of what's just come before it, human beings hide from God. They realize that there's a creator-creation distinction and it's actually too much of them. They don't want to be there. They're afraid of him. They don't want to be around him. They can't handle it. And that dynamic of hiding is what pops up again and again and again when this occurs. And then we fast forward through the first part of the Bible and we see this exact scene that we've just read out, uh, the book of Exodus. God appears to Moses uh, in a burning bush and the bush is on fire, but at the same time, it's totally fine. Uh, And God addresses Moses and Moses hides his face. Um, He's afraid to look at God. He can't handle it. The experience is too much for him. It's too much intensity. It's too real. 
So this is happening again. And then later on in Moses' life, we see one of the most probably prolific moments of theophanies in the entire Old Testament, uh, where God appears at a mount on, on Mount Sinai. And in this one, there's like this crazy cloud of fire that descends on the mountain and there's these huge thunderclaps and there's lightning and there's smoke billowing off it, like describes it like it came off it like an oven. Um, And there's a really deafening trumpet sound and all the people shake with fear and they say to Moses, don't let God speak to us because if that happens, we will die. So again, they've got this incredibly real experience of this is actually too much for us. I can't, can't deal with it. And once again, they can't bear to be in the presence of this theophany. The distinction between creator and creation is too pronounced. They can't take it. They kind of feel completely out of control with what's happening to them. You with me so far? Great. Then the next one you kind of see, you get these uh, interesting visions that occur later on in the Old Testament through the form of the prophets. Um, So the first one that I can sort of go to that we, that we really see that's pretty incredible is in the book of Isaiah, and it's almost like this crazy psychedelic experience. Uh, and um, the prophet of the same name, name is taken to this intense throne scene, uh, and the, the whole place is filled with cloud and smoke. The robe of the Lord fills the room. You've got all these angels shouting at each other throughout the room. And again, the whole place is shaking because of their voices. Um, and the prophet just stands there and goes, woe to me, because he's realised when he's seen something too pure for him and he can't handle it. So again, we're seeing the same dynamic play out again and again and again. Uh, and then we get to probably one of the most freaky diggy parts of the entire Bible uh, in the book of uh, Ezekiel. And uh, the prophet of the same name, he sees this windstorm um, and it's made of a massive cloud and it's flashing with lightning and there's a glowing fire in the middle. And then you have these creatures, uh, and you can't exactly describe them properly, but there's wheels involved and lots of eyes. Um, So it is very, very strange and intense, and Ezekiel just drops to the ground in fear. And it's confronting, it's completely unsettling, and it's something beyond us. Uh, And we use this word God, right? Like we know what we're talking about sometimes, don't we? Like we use the word God like we're talking about something else, something easy to understand with a straightforward meaning like, like noodle or carpet or nostril. You know, it's God sometimes likes to remind us that he's God and everything that comes with it. So we're dealing with theophanies when we're dealing with that. Yeah? Making sense. Okay, cool. So in this story of the burning bush, we see exactly that. It's kind of this, re- this resetting moment. It's a reintroduction. Now, Moses has probably heard a little bit about God at this point. We don't exactly know what has been passed on to him through family, um, probably, but probably enough to know that God and the Hebrew people are sort of connected in some way. Um, but now these exact people that God had connected himself to were enslaved. Uh, they were oppressed. Uh, and this God that he would have heard of seems to be absent and been absent for a very long time. So whoever this mysterious God was, the jury was probably still out on whether he was good. And the data of life surrounding them was suggesting that he maybe forgotten his promises and that he had left them to it and that they were the ones to save themselves. So that's probably where they're sitting with that. And it turns out, I think, that this question, are you good, God, is always a live one. And I mean, we say he is, and most of, most of the time we believe he is, and uh, 
We believe that because it's what we know and we read about Jesus and we like the stories that we see and there's goodness on the pages and we can feel God near and that's good. And we can say that God is good when things are as they should be and they're uncomplicated. But it's a live question. It should be a live question because what about when that employer lets us go? Is God still good? Or that friendship suddenly disappears or that health scare hits us out of nowhere? or the second line of the test still doesn't appear, or that relationship breaks down, or nothing seems to change when you really need it to, or one day you just can't get out of bed. In those moments, the question is a very live one. Who are you, God, and are you good? And in his reintroduction to Moses, uh, God is making it very clear that there's a very clear creature-creator distinction going on. So he gets Moses to take his shoes off and Moses doesn't want to look at him, doesn't want to see what he can see. Um, And he makes Moses aware that this isn't some sort of hokey God or spirit or some sort of man-made fairy godmother idea. Moses is meeting with the ground of all being, the source of life itself. Something so beyond materiality, uh, but not something less than material, something more, something uh, something so much that there's no reference point for it. Um, And Moses had to hide his face. Who is this God? At this point, he must have realized, I think, that he was completely helpless in the face of this, at the mercy of whoever this God was. And you'd hope that this God was on your side. But then as God reintroduces himself, it becomes clear that this God remembers his people and his promises. He hates that they're miserable. He has heard their cry This God cannot be captured in language or understood next to any other experience, but he does seem to be good, maybe maybe even loving, and he shows himself in an act of love. So we could say that every time God shows up, every time that there's a theophany, he's always saying two things. I am God and you are not, and I am for you. I am God and you are not and I am for you. And we always have to be reminded of both, but usually one more than the other. But what does the Sabbath have to do with this story? And that's still the live question for me too, because um, I think culture pushes against us holding those things and actually even thinking about it in the first place. So let's just zoom out a little bit to talk about our culture now. Let's talk about something that's emerged in recent history, and I'm talking about hustle culture. So, we familiar with hustle culture? A little bit. So hustle culture is something that sort of emerged from about 2010. Um, now, it's all over social media and it's usually pushed by some very questionable male influences. We're not gonna name in church because that's yucky. Um, but usually it's, uh, it's built from those people. And this is kind of like a, a twisted version of something that's been growing in the last 70 years or so of men finding particularly um, success and fame and rising through the corporate ladder. Um, and equating money and happiness together and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's mutated, particularly since uh, 2010, and it's mutated into hustle culture. And hustle culture has kind of had these, I mean, it's really interesting always for me, I guess, at least, uh, to look at sort of internet history and these very recent histories. So it sort of started off as kind of just describing how things were going, and you'd see things on the internet like, uh, wake up and grind. Like if you're working, you're making money, you've got to be like, do, basically do your job well. That's what you're here to do. Take pride in it, work hard. 
But then as it moves on, you can kind of see this move into a second stage where it doesn't just want to stay there. It wants to stay in actually, um, you should have multiple gigs. Um, you should never stop grinding. So you might have your home, you might have your main job, but then you have your side hustle. That's where we get that concept from. So you have something you might sell on the side, that's your side hustle. It carries on. Basically, this idea that you should be using every waking minute to keep building your capital, building your brand, building your hustle. And then finally, and what we're seeing in the last couple of years is the, is the I guess, hopefully the most, most mutated version of this, which is the third stage, which is the scam era, uh, where people are selling you ideas in which you can work from home to do a bunch of different things, invest in this cryptocurrency or this... Uh, picture of an ape or something like that. Uh, if you just have the right investments, you'll be fine. And now all of a sudden, the word hustle isn't just something you do. A hustle is now a noun. You have a hustle. And uh, it's important because this is sort of in the background of all of our speaking about work um, most of the time. And actually, it's a frantic quest to game a system, to work for your freedom, and to, I guess, to become the, the Gen Z icon of, of, icon of success, which is an entrepreneur, uh, the autonomous and rich entrepreneur. And all of this can lead to a view of human relationships uh, that means that human beings are either superfluous because they can't really add anything to your personal goal, um, that's just, they're just things you can utilize to get to your goal, or uh, they're really just a distraction from stopping you to get to your goal. Uh, and so hustle culture and the collateral effect of this is that it has on the way we speak about um, human life enslaves us to, I guess, this prime virtue of efficiency and achievement above all else. And so the yin of hustle culture has a yang uh, to it too, and it's a parasite that has grown on us. So the yang to hustle culture, surprise, surprise, is the wellness culture, which basically exploded at just the same time. Because we've worked ourselves into the ground so much uh, that now we have to be reminded to connect with ourselves um, and be mindful, and to put it crudely, uh, we've put so much mental pressure on ourselves that an entire industry has basically boomed and uh, just to remind us to take deep breaths and to stretch. And it's necessary, but seeing these two things dominate um, the online space and talk about work, health, and what it means to be human is really interesting. And the most dangerous shortfall of both of them being locked into this trying to vie for balance here the most dangerous shortfall of that is that we, in both instances, are architects of our own destiny. That we are the deliverers of the future that we want to have. That we are playing God on these tracks of control. Uh, and if we don't step out of this and remember that we're not in fact God, uh, we will grasp for control and enslave ourselves in frantic attempts at being our own saviors. And this all stems from the belief that there is no one coming to help us. Uh, that, that if there is a God, the jury is out on whether he's good or not. So the answer to the question, are you good God, in the background of our culture has actually already been answered by default. And it doesn't seem like he is. Um, so if we don't make the effort to allow ourselves to be formed otherwise, we'll be functional atheists in the sense that we will constantly take control of our lives, be our own answers, uh, to step into the creator role rather than the, the created role. And... Uh, and this is where I really start to have to preach to myself. Uh, and actually, this is where my anxiety will cripple me as I try to control life itself. So then there's Sabbath. Hopefully the dots will all start to connect. 
<clears throat> then there's Sabbath. And God is like, hey, stop. Remember who you are and remember who I am. If you keep living like all of the answers are on your own shoulders, you'll implode. I am God, you are not, and I'm good. So put down the computer, stop white knuckling through life and trust me. It's not really about whether you're doing certain practices or stopping work for certain periods of time. It's about doing something that reminds you that you are not God and discovering the goodness of the person who actually is. Now, it's been, it's been a difficult admission over the last little while to accept that I don't just get anxious every now and then, uh, but I have a particular vulnerability to it. Um, so, you know, fairly often I'll have a bit of a moment. <laughs> and uh, this started presenting in my life probably in my early 20s as I started sort of encountering uh, moments of, I, I guess, experiences you hadn't had before, like big things around jobs and relationships and you take on more responsibility. And I think probably in those moments I started to decide for myself or maybe I just assumed that I had to carry it all alone for some reason. So I did, and I found out that I couldn't do that very well, and so you'd have those big moments of kind of just it not working. And so I tried to carry it emotionally and mentally to get on with it and push through. Um, but the thing is, if you've never really learned to rely on anyone else, uh, it's gonna, not going to be a huge surprise that you can't really do that with God either. Um, and so giving back the creator title to him is <laughs> actually really hard. But white knuckling is not what we're designed for. Um, this is why suffering, moments when we're where the carrying doesn't work anymore, tend to be the moments where we're struck with this truth again. Often that's the, the only thing that can get through to us, is that you're not God, stop trying to be. But maybe, <laughs> maybe we don't actually wait for those moments of implosion. Maybe we plan for having those moments on our own terms in a different way. Maybe we invite them uh, to be part of what we do. We stop and rediscover who God is uh, and who we are and who we tend, uh, and we tend, to, uh, we tend to the live question, God, who are you? Are you good? And let him answer. And we might find that God does show us again and again who he is and can remember that we are just human beings. So back to Theophanies. <laughs> What I didn't mention is that the ones we reviewed in the Old Testament weren't the only ones in the whole Bible, obviously. They're actually all pointing to the final theophany, the person of Jesus, where God shows up as one of us. Because even with God showing up and speaking, it's still actually kind of unclear what he's really like. Um, we could still fill in the gaps with our own uh, ideas pretty easily, and we could still connect the clues together in ways that might not actually be that good. So let me take you to probably what will be now, since we've done that review, a pretty familiar sounding story in Matthew 17. So <clears throat> we're going to hear some echoes from what we've just talked about. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His, face, his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. 
Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. Again, this is sounding very familiar. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. Look what we see here. We see a theophany pattern play out all over again. There's unapproachable light, a cloud, a voice. The disciples fall flat on the ground, terrified, as they should. As creatures, they're being confronted by a reality uh, that's totally beyond them. It's too real. It's, it's, it's God. It's not just a nice warm feeling on my insides and my heart, but something bigger than reality itself. But watch what happens at the end. Jesus comes and touches them and says, don't be afraid. And they look up and it's nothing. It's no one but Jesus. He's the only one left. It's this really tender moment of saying, yes, it's all of God, but it's all for you. And you see everything that the burning bush and Sinai and the visions and all the theophanies were all pointing to the full revealing of God in him. He is the key to seeing God in a way we can understand. And he's tender and he's close and he's for us. And it doesn't give away any of the holy and overwhelming and transcendent elements. He's still God, but he's with us. And it's pretty beautiful. He's with us as us. So when Jesus touches them and says, don't be afraid, he's, not, he's doing more than just reassuring them. He's reminding them that once, whilst the experience they've just had um, has shown them something deeply true about the beyondness of God that he inhabits, he is for them. Don't be afraid. He's the bridge. He is that which allows us to know the unknowable, to comprehend the incomprehensible, and to put language to that which cannot be articulated. The mystery has a name. And God has a face, and we humans can now speak of that which we never could through our own limited capacities. So when you close the door and pray, you are, by grace, entering into communion with this God. He has made this possible for mere humans, for flesh and blood, people of the dust. Prayer is a miracle. If we really remember who we're actually coming to, it's a miracle the God of all these theophanies. It actually demands that we take him seriously as God, but also as for us. And we can't do that if we're going 100 miles an hour, grasping onto control the whole time, solving all our problems, acting as if we are God. We can't do that in the mode of staying in control. We need to let him show us that we can stop trying to be God. The crazy part is, by the Spirit, when we do that, we actually do start to become like Him, which is very surprising. And this is where you get people like C.S. Lewis saying, he's not safe, but he is God. Or has someone explained it to me when I was a teenager, he's not God Almighty, he's God Almighty. I love that one. I never forgot it. And now you'll remember it forever as well. He's not God Almighty, he's God Almighty. And now I just want to read you a, um, a, a short passage from Hans Urs von Balthasar, who's one of my favourite theologians, mainly because of his name, but also because of uh, what he says. And he has this beautiful way of putting this. 
Unless a person is acquainted with trembling awe, reaching down to the very ground of his being at the thought of God's nature, he will never be ready for the contemplation of Jesus Christ. At the least, he will need to prepare himself in the school of the old covenant, like we've kind of done this morning. Otherwise, he'll be in danger of coming to Christ like someone blind and dumb, finding nothing more in him than an example of perfect humanity. Anyone contemplating the life of Christ needs to be newly and more deeply aware every day that something impossible, something scandalous has occurred, that God in his absolute being has resolved to manifest himself in human life. This is what we're doing, trying to hold those two things together, bringing this live question of God, are you good? And allowing it to be answered by someone who's so beyond us yet so for us and holding those two massive ideas in tension. So when you come to the communion table, um, what we're actually saying is, it's your being, God, that holds my being up. (laughs) Um, And I often do this um, sometimes with a little candle. I'll light my little candle on a big candle to remind myself that the only reason I'm being held together at all is because he who holds everything together is doing that. And when I come to God, I'm not just having a mindful experience I'm encountering someone far beyond anything that really exists in this reality. He's not a being, he is the ground of all being. This is where language starts to get really freaky deaky. So you're invited to keep coming with this question, God, are you good? And I don't know what that means for you guys. I mean, for me, I I get confronted with having to like hand over that to God all the time. Maybe you're like me, maybe you carry too much. Maybe you've been trying to be God and maybe it's actually just too heavy. Maybe he needs to show you again, I am God and you are not. Maybe that's what you need to hear. Maybe you've let God become really small. (laughs) Maybe he is just a means to an end. Maybe he's a set of beliefs. Maybe he's a core set of doctrines that you'll defend for fun on the internet. Maybe you want a theophany to remind you how big this God is, that when you pray, it's a miracle because you're coming in contact with that which is beyond reality itself. Or maybe very simply, you just need to be reminded that this God who you're very aware is beyond you and too holy um, for for your own comprehension is still actually totally for you. It's the goodness of God and holding these two things together. He is God, but he is for you. And we see glimpses of that in the burning bush. We see that fully in the person of Jesus. We're all, uh, we're all on the verge of our own theophany all the time, waiting for God to be encountered. And this is why Sabbath is so important because it's actually not about the practices or whatever you do. It's not about reading the right new books to get you there. What it's actually doing is stop doing what you're doing as if everything depends on your actions. Stop Remember who you are because you're remembering who I am. Cool. (laughs) Let me just pray and then we're going to do communion. And uh, we're actually going to practice this act of throwing our beings on God in this way as we do that. God, in this society of um, people and uh, industries and us as well who basically use the word God as if we know what we're talking about, 
as if uh, you are a commodity that we can sell, can take control of, as if you are just a therapeutic, nice feeling uh, that we can feel connected and warmed on the inside. And you do, in your grace, do that. But may we be awakened to just how beyond us you really are. May we be shown that when we sing about you, when we come to you, uh, when we experience your spirit, we're actually coming into contact with a God so far beyond our own uh, comprehension. Would you show us that again, God? And uh, this morning, would you also show that you are the same God that reaches down, touches the disciples and tells them not to be afraid in spite of everything they've just seen because of that whole experience, they are still uh, your children. Hold us and show us how to do that, Lord. Amen.